questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Mark Twain once said, History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Distrustful of authority, tonight's special guest, a Holocaust survivor, became a fierce critic of the medical establishment. She's one of the most effective and passionate, some would say extreme advocates for the rights of medical research subjects in the U.S. She has exposed experiments testing HIV drugs on toddlers in New York's foster care system and helped scuttle government research that would have paid low-income Florida families $970 to test their children's exposure to household pesticides. She helped pressure the National Institutes of Mental Health to rewrite protocols and dozens of psychiatric studies to better protect patients. And her relentless advocacy was key to forcing U.S. drug regulators to warn about the suicide risk that antidepressants posed to teenagers. For years, she sent out a nearly daily barrage of emails to thousands of journalists, activists, and scientists accusing academic researchers, pharmaceutical executives, and drug regulators of manipulating research findings or failing to protect patients. Being a Holocaust survivor gives her the unique perspective to identify the parallels we are seeing today. We still have time to remain free. If you want to know, stay with us. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Vera Sharaf is a public advocate for human rights. Their odyssey as a child survivor gave her insight about the consequences that follow when medicine marches in lockstep with government. That unholy alliance has led to the adoption of public health policies that violate the autonomy and human rights of individuals. Vera is the founder and president of the Alliance for Human Research Protection, AHRP, whose mission is to uphold the humanitarian values and ethical standards of medicine and the universal human right to voluntary, informed consent to medical decision-making. Vera has testified before public policy advisory forums, including the FDA, the National Academy of Science, and the Institute of Medicine. She testified against exposure of children in experiments that put them at risk of harm, against mass mental screening of children, which served as a market expansion tactic to increase the use of psychiatric drugs. She testified against human pesticide experiments sponsored by Bayer Corp. Science. Her advocacy was instrumental in the suspension of a government pesticide experiment in young children called CHEERS, the suspension of smallpox vaccine tests on children and anthrax vaccine tests in children. Her complaints led to the suspension of a violence prediction experiment in which 6- to 11-year-old boys in New York City 
who were exposed to flamfluramine, fenfen, a dangerous drug that was later recalled by the FDA. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. And her website is ahrp.org, which is also linked at ours. And direct from New York City, I would like to welcome Vera Sharav. Hello, Vera, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you very much for inviting me. I am honored. Thank you for being here with me. Vera, I want to start with your story. Your world collapsed when you were three and a half years old in Romania. Let's begin from there. Yeah, that's that's when we were uh, chased away from our home and uh, deported to Ukraine. Uh, we were herded into a concentration camp there. This was not a death camp. This was one of, oh gosh, they were, most recently they've counted more than 42,000 concentration camps and ghettos of various kinds were scattered throughout Europe. This camp was essentially um, a starvation camp because there was nothing provided. Uh, and of course, um, Typhus was rampant, as it was in all the ghettos and concentration camps, given that there was, people were starving, people had no hygienic facilities, everything was filthy. So, of course, lice were all over the place. Uh, I learned a great deal uh, in hindsight. I, For one thing, I learned about the reality and the nature of evil. Uh, I learned about living under constant fear, because although it wasn't a death camp, death was all around. Um, people were always afraid of being sent, of being put on a list. There were constant lists issued. And if you were on a list, some of the lists were for slave labor and others for uh, death camp. Uh, once my father died, I was maybe five, I'm not really sure exactly, um, that made me far, far more afraid, because I was afraid then of losing my mother. Um, and there was a an orphanage, and every so often they would take them out, and this those children were like the skeletons that many of you might have seen in pictures. It was, I was terrified. I would run and hide because I was always afraid that I'd be sent to that. Um, you know, uh, not everyone, you know, who was in the camp, uh, was a good person. People, one of the things that I learned eventually was, especially when I actually was rescued from the camp. I was rescued because my mother got wind of the fact that there was a possibility uh, of orphan children being rescued. This was very late in the game. This was when the final solution was in full swing in 1944. Uh, some deal was struck. Essentially, we were bartered. I'm not sure who exactly which organizations paid the ransom, 
but a ransom was paid for several hundred Jewish children in 44 to be rescued, to be not exterminated. So my mother lied to save my life. Um, and then for the next 10 months, I was essentially a child in transit with no one to take care of me. Uh, I did not trust uh, my peers, in other words, other children, uh, to take care of me. I knew I couldn't take care of myself and very little. I hardly grew in the camp. I was there for three years, and I left wearing the same coat that I went in with. This is in Istanbul now? No, not yet. Okay. This is still, in other words, we were sent, those of us from the camp that I was in, we were sent back to Romania. And it was a ruse. It was, uh, they claimed that they had made a mistake and that we, the children, should really not have been sent to the camp. Well, this was nonsense, but that was the ruse. So we were sent back to Romania, where we came from. Um, I, during this time, I had to fend for myself, and I, I had to learn to assess people. Um, and to assess who would be kind and whom I could trust to take care of me. I found, I did find people who helped me. There was a Christian family, Romanian Christian family, who took me into their home and nursed me back to health. I was with them for a few months. Uh, I was a wandering child here. Um, I was, in, at one point, when I left that family, that kind Christian family, um, I had an uncle, a rich uncle, in Bucharest. That's That was the capital. And he and his family had converted in, in order to avoid being sent on to any camp. He sent a car with a chauffeur to pick me up when he learned of my existence, that I was wandering. Uh, and the strangest thing was that I was in a car and there were two German soldiers who were my companions in the car. And I had to, you know, I lied that I was a Romanian little girl who was just visiting my cousin and going back home. And, uh, yeah, you, one of the things you do learn is both how to lie, the importance of, you know, sometimes lying to save your life. Is, Survival, is, yeah. Very important. Um, but you see, later on, you know, some of those, shall I say, habits, you know, it's really uh, survival techniques. Uh, they don't, <laughs> they don't, they're not exactly acceptable in, <laughs> in normal society, you know, <laughs> one had to unlearn some things. But anyway, be that as it may, I, so I stayed with my uncle uh, and his family. Um, 
also for about three months. And then I was en route uh, to Israel. This was, of course, before the state was established. It was 1944. And on the train from Bucharest to the harbor city of Constanza, I befriended a family. Again, I latched on to a family. They were also en route to Israel. When we got there, there were three small boats, and the names began to be called off, and each one was assigned to a boat. I was assigned to the boat with all the orphan children. I absolutely refused to get on that boat. No matter what, I refused. I cried. I screamed. I, I had a you know real temper tantrum about it because I was not going on that boat no matter what. And, uh, you know, I wound up alone at the dock there sitting on my little suitcase. Everybody else had already embarked. They were all waiting and yelling at me to get, I wouldn't, no matter what. And uh, in the end, they actually gave in to me. And I went on the boat with the family that I had selected as my uh, guardians. The first night out at sea, I was asleep by then. I had been very seasick, and I slept at night. So I didn't witness uh, but a submarine torpedoed the boat with all the children. Uh, I learned about it only the next morning when people were still very upset. And I didn't say a word, not one word. I just thought to myself, I was right. I also do remember having a pang of guilt. I felt guilty because I was glad to be alive. But that act of disobedience saved my life. And I tell you that that whole incident came, you know, flashing back in my memory now during this travesty that we're going through. Now, what is the parallel of that is event and what we're seeing today? Well, no, the parallels are the various stages that led up uh, to the different stages of the Holocaust. You see, a lot of people simply equate uh, the whole World War II with Auschwitz, but that's not, that's not correct. Hitler came to power in 1933. The extermination of the Jews, which is the Holocaust, didn't start before 41. So there were a lot of stages to the dictatorship, and it was slow. In part, Hitler tested the waters. Had there been an outcry in the world, had there been some intervention, it wouldn't have happened. The Holocaust happened because the world was silent. Do you think, Vera, that if we have had the Internet back in those days, it would still have happened? And I say that it probably would have because based on what I see today, with the Internet that we have, people are still obedient. It's almost like we haven't learned from history. 
Well, that's that's probably the. I mean, that is really the issue. The the the, the education on lack of it. So when you say the internet, yes, you would think that with the exposure and the availability of information, all kinds of sources of information, not only the official, it's really terrible that people aren't seeking the information and swallowing the party line, the official government corporate line. That is, it's amazing. And it's, look, in part, this is why I am speaking out wherever wherever I'm invited, pretty much, because I think it's terribly important for people to recognize the signs, the similarities, parallels, whatever you want to call it, but they exist, and history is what alerts us to it. The reason I'm aware of it, that my eyes are open, is because I've gone through it, and at least some of it. And I recognize the signs that, you know, that unravel, that become this proverbial slippery slope. It's much easier to stop an evil machinery from gaining uh, impact and, and, and full development. It's much easier to stop it early, just like a disease. Much easier. But if you go to, uh, the extreme, it's, it's inevitable. If, if you have, and they're not stopped, they're only emboldened to increase their tyrannical, uh, dictatorship to take away more and more of people's rights and freedoms. I saw a quote that I keep repeating in the past few weeks, Vera. It's by uh, Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. In medieval times, lepers were blamed for spreading disease. And during the Holocaust, Jews were blamed for spreading disease. Now the unvaccinated are blamed, blamed for spreading uh, COVID. Do we ever learn from history? Well, if, you, if people would study history, they would learn. And let me say something else about that, because not only have people not tended to take history seriously as a lesson, things to learn from history, not a story. Uh, this is playing out right now with people who mention, who utter the idea that there are parallels in what's happening now with what and how the Holocaust evolved, they are being hounded and censored and demonized. And this is something, so first of all, as, you know, as a reporter, you know, that if a subject is taboo, it means that there, there are hidden meanings there that they don't want you to unravel. And this is what has happened with Holocaust. There are these self-anointed guardians who want to keep the Holocaust away from any discussion about today, 
or any time really. They want to keep it frozen, to be taken out yearly for fundraising, but they are essentially rendering the Holocaust irrelevant to history. I consider that a far worse sin than Holocaust deniers. And I'm sorry to say that many of them are Jewish institutions, leaders, Holocaust survivors who have witnessed some of the brutality by black uniformed police, just like the Nazis, in European cities, in Australia, in Canada, and even in Israel. They're horrified. Of course it brings back memories. Of course it's equal to the time that that was happening in Germany. Why Israel, you think? Where's the never again? Never. You see, sound bites are empty. They're meaningless. They're cheap. You know, they get a quick, ah, oh, yeah, but they mean nothing. Never again means study the Holocaust history and learn from it. That's the way you keep it from happening again, because you keep people alert to the signals, the warning signs, the steps that lead slowly, slowly, slowly. Uh, you know, uh, I just saw that um, in France, I think, they rolled back passports for people who had two, took two doses of the vaccine, the injection really, because they want them to take a booster. Well, guess what? Hitler stopped the <laughs> passports of Jews. Really? <laughs> Declared them no more citizenship. That's not a parallel? Well, when I say... When I say Israel, I don't mean to, to interject, but when I say Israel, I'm, I'm talking about the, I mean, the mere existence of that state is as a refuge for the people who, who survived and those who were persecuted around the world. You would think that it's in their DNA to rebel against any tyranny or any forced experimentation on the population, but it's not happening. That's right. And I think as, you know, as sad as it is for me to acknowledge, that's right. It's not in their DNA, and they clearly have not learned the lessons. And um, all I can, all I can say about that, because you know, I'm nobody's judge except in my own way. You know, <laughs> um, is I guess they really are, are no better than anybody else. Uh, all pretext to the contrary is false. They're no better. And one of the things that I think has had an influence, and a bad one, is technology. Israelis absolutely embraced technology. And I'm not 100% sure as to why exactly, but it's... You know, it's international, gave them access to the latest sought-after specialty. And technocrats, you know, 
that one of the dangers is kind of reducing humans to mere sort of widgets. I mean, data collectors. And of course, most people didn't realize that their favorite, I guess, technological gadget, the iPhone, is a two-way highway. We all thought, oh, this is so convenient, and you can uh, speak with, with people all over the world, and you can connect, and you can this, and you can that. The only thing is, you didn't. Most of us did not realize that the companies were getting far more data from us than we were getting from them. And that has become really, um, as Yuval Noah Harari says, I mean, all that human beings are now is, is data sources. Data is what's valuable, not the human. They are prepared at this point to actually create transhumans. I thought, really, until COVID, I thought transhumanism was just science fiction. It was yeah. ridiculous to think that it was, you know. No, they are really, really serious. And they're laying it all out. People should really read carefully the World Economic Forum and see what they have in store for us. I keep hearing there's some synthetic components in that injection, but you say the Holocaust was technologically efficient, industrialized genocide, very methodical, on schedule, and it had the veneer of legitimacy from the medical profession. Tell us about the collaboration Hitler had from Wall Street bankers and major corporations, Germany, Switzerland, and the United States. They were complicit and partners. That's right, they were. It was the large, the mega corporations. Uh, they already were kind of oligarchs in the, you know, they already had their sights on global conquest. Uh, well, the most intimate that connected with Hitler was both the Rockefellers, Standard Oil, who was in partnership with IG Farben, uh, IBM. IBM was the technological facilitator uh, of really the Holocaust in the sense of identifying, tracking, uh, deporting, uh, confiscating property. Everything was, they had punch card system, but that punch card system, though it pretty primitive compared to today. Nevertheless, it was sufficiently efficient for them to be able to track every Jew, identify first, they, the way it began. Okay? Here's how the data was collected. They uh, did census. They took census first in Germany and then in the occupied countries. And they examined all the records, which is how they were able also to identify Jews who no longer even identified themselves as Jews. They had birth records. They then used that information to identify Jews when Hitler wanted to expel them from Germany. And they were involved in every aspect of the genocidal process, including scheduling the trains that went to the death camps, 
so that there was no time lost. Train would come, deliver thousands of people, those who didn't die en route, and go back empty and bring their next. And it went on like this day and night, day and night. IBM technicians and the machines were in many of the concentration camps. IBM coded the cause of death, starvation, suicide, shooting, clobbering to death, extermination. Um, yeah. And today, IBM remains one of the major um, tracking and surveillance technology producers. What is particularly galling is that, well, first, in New York State, then-Governor Cuomo contracted IBM, the Excelsior Passport, the Green Passport. What's galling is that there are synagogues, there are Jewish institutions, including Yeshiva University, with its multi-campuses in New York City, requiring the IBM passport for entry for students or worshippers. That is, you know, beyond and that they have not learned the history of their people. I remember in the mid-80s, I worked at a bank's computer center. And I remember this rudimentary machine that we had to use. And that's when I learned of the, it was the IBM punch card system, which even in the 80s was still being used. Was the IBM of the 40s the equivalent of today's tech tyranny from Silicon Valley on how complicit they have been in the past two years? Absolutely. And they are, you know, they are uh, very complicit. They're, they've got co contracts, uh, you know, with the CIA, with the intelligence community with the military. I mean, this is, that's where this stuff really has leaped in uh, development. All of Silicon Valley really <laughs> is the product of the military, not, not the guys who became billionaires. So IBM, IBM was the prototype of the current technology, the current information and surveillance technology, isn't it? That's right. That's exactly right. And for a long time, they were kind of the only ones in, you know, in the game. Uh, but yes. Uh, and I'd like to point out something else in this fact, which is kind of interesting to maybe make some people think. And that is that, um, Watson, the CEO, he went immediately. He met with Hitler early on and offered his services. Turns out he, also took a cut, a 1% cut of the profits, personally. That might make people think, maybe, like all these heads of state who are following the same playbill in requiring the shots and requiring passports, digital passports, what's in it? For them, you think this, after all, this whole thing is about both financial windfall and the destruction of the lives of ordinary people. 
Can we equate the IBM punch card system to the vaccine passport, the high-tech version? Absolutely. <laughs> That's The difference is that the IBM technology, well, they had to use... They had to use tattoos, right? Uh, they didn't have digital. That's, that's a huge, huge leap. So now what digital passports entail, it's really got nothing to do with the visit, with this particular vaccination. It's just the vaccination is being used as a pretext. Once, once you're digitized <laughs> and Actually, um, Bill Gates had uh, commissioned a uh, tattoo, called a chip tattoo, to be inserted in the body. And then a person who's chipped that way can be monitored remotely. You don't have to have guards and barbed wires and all of that. Oh, no. That was then. Now what you'll have is just remote. Just like the drones that carry out wars without the soldiers having to face the enemy. It means that the, those digital passes, that technology, gives total control of all your movements, all your actions, everything, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The old IBM technology couldn't do that. They had to have a lot of guards. They had to have all kinds of things. This won't need anything. And if anybody needs a stronger hint than the impounding of the money of the truckers in Canada, that's a signal of what can be done with digital passes, digital identity and it will have everything on it, not just how many vaccines, but everything, all your biometric identification, all your financial assets, bank account, everything. They'll even know what you're dreaming about. I think COVID was just a Trojan horse to usher in what you're stating. But let me just ask you this. It seems that the medical establishment around the world has been conscripted, almost like if it was the military. Didn't Hitler do the same in the mid-30s with the medical industry? I used to say that what distinguished the Holocaust from all other genocides was the complicity of the medical establishment and the turning of the healing profession into uh, a mass murder operation, genocide. Until now. Until now. This is now the second time in history where the medical establishment and all its institutions have been, uh, well, they, they're doing it willingly. They did it willingly then, too. Uh, there is one difference, and I, and I cannot but uh, emphasize that, and that there, there are today thousands of medical doctors and scientists some of them very prominent, who are pushing back, who recognize the evil for what it is, and who are warning the public, providing the public with the 
information that the government doesn't want you to know to provide you with the armament, which is information. They know to protect your children from this horror. Children who have, it's been shown throughout these years, they are not at risk from, why are they being delivered by the parents? How is it that you have departments of health offering bribes to parents? In Minnesota, and I read this interview with Minnesota families, they offered parents five-year-olds $200 visa credit and to be in a lottery for five scholarships to colleges worth $100,000, okay? Those medical officials, those public health officials who formulated that, who thought up of this bribery of parents, that's evil. That is evil. That is equivalent to Joseph Mengele in my book. Well, today we have the profit factor, payments for diagnosis, for admittance at the hospital, for being intubated, for dying. Back then, what was the motivator? Again, all right, there there is the parallel, which I speak about, which is, uh, you know, the the Holocaust, the the whole um, horror of Nazism was not only the Jews were not the only victims. They were the, the primary um, objects, really. That's what they were reduced to. Uh, but they were really the first, as far as a whole uh, nationality. But before that, or during the time when Jews were already being discriminated and segregated and, and intimidated in many ways, there was another uh, project. It was called T4, and that was mass euthanizing of Germans. The first victims of the Holocaust were German infants and children under the age of three. Their crime was they weren't perfect. They were disabled. Next came children of all ages with disabilities then the mentally ill, and then the nursing home residents. All of these human beings were deemed by doctors to be worthless eaters whom doctors selected to be killed, to be medically murdered. Some 300,000 Germans, among them 1,000 children, were medically murdered. The um, justification was first to cleanse the genetic pool and second to get rid of the economic burden. In March and April of 2020, the wealthiest countries in the world, Western Europe, Canada, at least five states in the United States, Australia, medically murdered nursing home residents. They issued orders to hospitals not to treat them. Uh, in most cases, they were given midazolam at very high doses. And uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo 
before he issued that order, which was signed by Dr. Andrew Zucker, the public health official, Andrew Cuomo predicted that this virus in nursing homes would be like fire. Through grass. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, um, again, you want to know the definition of evil? That's the definition of evil. Do you wonder, Vera, if the sexual allegations were planted on Cuomo to get him off from what the crime he truly committed was, which was the extermination, the genocide of 15,000 nursing home residents? Yeah, that's a good point because really, look, he didn't rape. <laughs> he didn't have to, you know, as governor, I guess, you know, you think you're entitled to do anything you want. Uh, that's a very good point. They may have wanted to get rid of him for that reason because what really should have happened, he should have stood trial and, you know, along with his uh, health department for crimes against humanity. And that would have opened up, you're right, that would have opened up a whole discussion that they don't want. Many people high in the government were involved and probably wanted him out. Not to protect them, but to protect themselves. To protect themselves from trial. Because, you know, <laughs> one thing about American uh, system, justice system, I mean, <laughs> discovery picks up a lot of things that they don't want to come out. Right. One of the reasons why you're here today is because you're teaching us a lot of lessons in history, which a lot of people don't pay attention. They, they, they deem to ignore it. But when we think of Hitler and the Nazis, we also think of sterilization. And, and many don't know that the actual principle of eugenics was exported to Germany from the United States. And it was Charles Davenport, the father of the American eugenics movement. He was a biologist who conducted early studies of heredity in animals, and then shifted his focus to humans. Can you talk about that and how Hitler adopted the modern eugenics movement in Germany? The United States was the first country to implement forced sterilization. By now I forgot how many states, very many states were involved. Uh, I, I think California has the dubious distinction of having done the most sterilizations. The eugenics movement was very strong in California. Uh, what eugenics, uh, the ideology uh, of it was really was drawn up by the British. It's a UK, or it, or it originated in UK. However, the United States, the robber barons were very much in favor of eugenics, um, gave it a much more practical uh, and got it to be implemented. In other words, laws were passed by states that gave it the semblance of legality, and Hitler was so impressed, yes, he used and the American model, uh, which he then simply uh, implemented to even greater proportions. So, now those oligarchs, um, Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, the, that clan of robber barons, 
they all had um, throughout the well before the war before 39 many more were involved but even during the war Rockefeller for example they were partners with IG Farben uh, and they had their own concentration camp just next to Auschwitz the doctors from Auschwitz would send them slave laborers whom they worked to death and got each time another shipment they conducted pharmaceutical experiments and other experiments as well some of the atrocities were done on the IG Farben Auschwitz camp uh, it's now Roosevelt actually had tried to to stop some of that it, it's really amazing the, the in other words this was really treason because once the United States entered the war it was the enemy but they got away with it Prescott Bush was one who was very involved in that in helping the Nazis financially yeah and yeah and he was right there yeah and uh you see how cover-ups um seem to be endemic you know and this is part of why you don't learn lessons because to learn the history you have to dig a bit because official books don't tell you that um i think really that if people would study history they would save themselves so such horrors they would prevent because they would recognize the pattern uh something that i haven't talked about before but the 1918 influenza that killed between 50 and 100 million people was no influenza it was a meningitis vaccine wasn't it yes it was rockefeller institute yep Coming from Fort Riley here in the United States, not Spain. That's right. That's where the first uh, victims, they were the guinea pigs. And then, you know, millions of troops were given these shots uh, and they died. And then when they, those that, those that recovered from uh, sickness, which was not a flu, was not a virus, uh, they went to Europe and infected the other troops. And then when the war ended, <laughs> um, Rockefeller, then they sent millions of doses that they had to something like a dozen countries all over the world. And that's why you had so many deaths. There was a, um, a woman, she was 13 in 1918. So she was a witness. Uh, and she wrote, she became a doctor, and she wrote books about it, what she had witnessed. And she described how, and this is very interesting, you haven't um, heard about her probably. Um, McBean is her last name. Oh, what's her first name? I, I, I have it. Anyway, McBean, um, she, she wrote the, the poison injection. 
57, and then she wrote a few other books. She described, now she was African-American, okay? And her family didn't believe in vaccines. So they didn't get injected, and they didn't get sick. Not only that, she describes that as the streets were empty, the stores were shut, everything was shut, just like we've gone through now. And she said, and her parents would go and from house to house and try to help people because you couldn't get a doctor. And throughout all of that, while going in and dealing with the sick, they never got sick. And they never brought any sickness to the children at home. So the whole myth was a big lie. I'm surprised her book. It was a bacterial infection. Yeah. And the bacterial infection may very well have been the content, the injections. Sound familiar. Because, you know, those who didn't get vaccinated didn't die. Nobody. Now, what's interesting about this, there's a lot interesting, but one of the things that kind of really, uh, this, this web, web that was been around this was used very much by Anthony Fauci now to frighten us. Oh, it's like, um, a doctor actually a member of the staff of the Rockefeller Institute. His name was Frederick Gates. He wrote, published a report in 1918 in which he described what happened at Riley. I was just going to mention Frederick Gates to you to see what you, I, I know there might not, might not be a relationship to Bill Gates, but isn't, isn't it interesting that they both are the, the, can we call them de facto person to start it well but you see he wrote the truth he all he talked about is when they got the vaccine in the morning by by noontime there were a hundred uh, sick true he he didn't conceal it but but then everyone else subsequently completely concealed it we need to sort of understand that the people the the uh Robber barons of then, they are continue, they've continued. The Rockefeller Foundation is and has been since its inception in 1913, been heavily involved in supporting, and I mean big time money, um, research and methods for population reduction. Population reduction is sort of a a um, a cleansed name for eugenics. Well, I think I'm more of a cleansed name now. See, I'm glad you're saying this when we have to take a break soon. But it's interesting that when a product or a service or even a movement is rejected by the population, they eliminate them, but they're rebranded. NutraSuite was renamed to AminoSuite. But it's still aspartame. Global warming was rebranded to climate change. Eugenics was rebranded to bioethics. The vocabulary changed, but the, the ideology didn't. No, it never changed. This is a... No, uh, eugenics is the, the real virus that infects particularly the medical establishment, public health. 
and public help is always used as the justification for some of the worst crimes in history. By the way, you mentioned MacBean, Eleanor MacBean. I'm surprised her book, The Poisoned Needle, Suppressed Fact About Vaccination, is still available at Amazon. They usually censor a lot. But one last question before we take a break. Ram Emanuel, you probably know that name, Obama's chief of staff and former mayor of Chicago, has a brother, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who was the architect of Obamacare, and Biden tapped him for his coronavirus task force. He's known to have proposed to limit life to age 75 as a rational paradigm to a better life and proposed refusing basic medical treatment to anyone that age or beyond. Is he a eugenicist? Sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In other words, here you have a Jewish Nazi. That's action T4. Isn't that the equivalent of what he's trying to do? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's no, it's not even, uh, it's not no different in any which way. Because um, doctors decide who shall live and who shall die, and they go by a, a um, guideline, a checklist, you know, and that's how that's how medicine becomes an engine of genocide. And this is one thing I want to discuss when we come back, because I'm sure that these parents in Germany, they must have been promised something. They called it special treatment for their children. They were taken away and probably eventually being coerced. And that was medical murder. I want to just discuss so much more. One hour just flew by. Vera, I'm so honored to have you here today. How can people learn more about your organization and about you? Well, they can go to the website and you know, it's packed with information, not just about this. Actually, I haven't posted much because I am so busy with, with interviews. And I just feel, you know, I have to try to reach as many people as I can to wake them up before it's too late. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. If you think that we discussed a lot, wait until you hear part two. I'm here with Vera Sharaf. My name is Mel Hostelrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>